As a kid, I mostly grew up summers on Cape Cod, you know, that little eastern stretch of Massachusetts out into the North Atlantic coast that kind of looks like an arm bent at the elbow. From about, I would say, mid-1970s to the early 1990s, every summer I was there. All of it, or a good substantial portion of it. Family had a summer house there. I went to sleepaway camp there. It was a really important part of my growing up. And then for most of the rest of the 90s, the 2000s, into just about a few years ago, I would go back occasionally, like I performed my younger sister's wedding there. would go back to see friends. My wife and I would go for a vacation occasionally, but it wasn't a regular part of my life until three summers ago when my youngest niece started to go away to the sleepaway camp where I went and where my sister went, and I would go see her and visit her at that camp. Two of my closest friends are both Episcopal priests, Tom and Shannon, um, are involved in a church there on Cape Cod. And they live there with their son, my godson. And so I get to see them every single summer now. And it's a chance for me to kind of recognize that in some ways you can go home again and get reconnected with a place that, at least for me, holds very precious memories. My godson... Last summer, not this past summer, but last summer, was actually a, a bat boy in what's called the Cape League Baseball that some of you may have heard of. It actually is for a very high-level collegiate players, some of whom actually you know, get drafted and make it all the way to Major League Baseball. And I'm remembering one night at the Cape League, would have been the early 1980s, I think, just this beautiful Cape Cod night, not too hot, not too cold, Sun was starting to set. The lights in the outfield were coming up. There's only a few hundred people there in attendance in any of these games. It was kind of a lull in the action. It was very quiet. And then I remember directed at the opposing team the voice of a probably on the cusp of pubescent boy yell out, Hey, pitcher, you suck. I remember it so well because it was me who said those words. (laughs) I am not proud (laughs) to this day. That was my voice above the crowd, and boy, did my parents let me know about it. And I grew up in a house in which people were allowed to curse, and actually, my parents could work a little artistry with their curse words at times. But the thing you didn't do was, you know, direct those curse curse words at someone. And so, in the leaden silence that hung around my neck on that drive home, I know that I had transgressed and disappointed in a meaningful way. What made me think of this story is that a friend of mine who's a teacher recently posted this online. Hi, Mrs. Blank. I saw that you liked a comment of mine. Your name rang a bell. I'm really sorry I gave you the finger all those years ago in sixth grade. (laughs) Struck a nerve, struck a chord with me. And And I wonder... What led this now grown-up former sixth grader giving the middle finger student to want to apologize all these years later? I figured that maybe it could be that, like me, they, you know, entered a path of recovery later on in life. 
And I can remember real early on in my recovery, which is coming up on 13 years ago, that I wanted to immediately go down the list of everyone I had hurt or harmed or done something mindless to. And I wanted to apologize to them as quickly as I could because I just wanted to expunge this guilt that I was living with. And fortunately, there were people who were much smarter than me and had more time in recovery than I did. And they said, we understand your conscience is feeling really overactive right now. (laughs) But give us some time. Do some healing. Engage after you've had a chance to recover some yourself. I still know the story of this particular former student of my teacher, a friend. But I wonder if part of the story is this, that maybe when he looks back now with a little bit of, oh, God, did I say that like I do at the Cape League baseball game? Maybe he recognized that by acknowledging to his former teacher this thing he did that was kind of mindless and kind of mean, that maybe he really does feel sorry to her for this thing. And also, yes, it is a way of acknowledging to himself, of marking the distance between then and now. That maybe he says, that's not who I am anymore. And by acknowledging that openly to her, he can confirm the fact that he has grown and he is different. This series that we kind of dive into here today that Reverend Lee and myself and our worship leader, Josie Waldman, will be offering over the next six, seven weeks or so is all about the one escapable fact of our life, that things change and we change. And that sometimes this change can be powerful and positive, and sometimes this change can be really, really painful. And that sometimes we can resist this change so greatly that it feels like nothing changes, and we become stuck. And that stuckness causes suffering for ourselves or for other people. And we can forget that we are always invited to grow. What I want to focus on today is how the experience of genuine, authentic forgiveness, of asking for and extending a true apology, can be one of the deepest ways of trusting what is still emerging now in our lives and that we have the possibility of change. I grew up in a largely cultural, not terribly religiously deep or Much to my chagrin, years later, I realized spiritually deep form of Judaism. But a few things of the time of the year, the Jewish calendar, did stay with me. And many of you might be aware right now that we are in the midst of what's called the High Holy Days in Judaism. Rosh Hashanah, which began this past week, the Jewish New Year, and coming up in just a few days, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, also sometimes understood to be the Day of Forgiveness. Now, what's taught within the tradition is that during these 10 days of the High Holy Days, the book of life is opened by the divine. And we are invited to write a new story for ourselves. That what has happened does not have to be predictive of what is going to happen. Now, I don't literally believe in a book of life held somewhere. What I do believe 
in a kind of deep psychological and spiritual way is that this book of life is here within each and every one of us. Not just for 10 days a year, but all the time. And we are always offered the invitation, especially if we feel stuck, to write something new, to compose a new story. And indeed, this is the heart of our Unitarian Universalist tradition, that although we may get stuck, it is not our destiny at all to be stuck that we are invited to grow most profoundly and flourish. It is in our nature to grow as human beings. My own experience tells me that an authentic apology asked for and offered is one of the most profound ways, and I think that's what was attested to by what my teacher friend wrote, is one of the most profound ways that we can mark that our capacity for change and transformation is real. Beginning, but not ending with those words of, I'm sorry. I ask for your forgiveness. That doesn't end anything. (laughs) In many ways, it just opens it up. The possibility of change and transformation is one of the reasons that I believe that two words that are often seen as oppositional, you know, come they are associated with two different traditions that actually, I think they belong together are karma and grace. I think they work together in our lives. If we really do flourish karma, which I'm not using in any metaphysical sense right now, karma is really this, that there are causes and consequences, actions and reactions and conditions that lead us to where we are right now. And so to realize one's karma, to realize our karma, is to recognize that the actions we have taken, the choices we have made, contribute, not all of it, but contribute to where we are in our lives right now. To realize our karma, which again is nothing metaphysical. It's just taking an inventory. Especially if we're feeling stuck. To fully realize our karma gives us the opportunity to write a new story. That's where the grace part comes in. The capacity to no longer play out the same old, same old, same old, same old, same old, on and on and on in our lives. It's happened with me. I can look around the room. I'm not picking anyone out. I know it's happened with you too, is happening. And I recently heard a story that I love that attests to this possibility with the provocative and wonderful title of My Bully Became a Buddhist. <laughs> the bully, I mean, this is a, this is a happy story. This ends well. <laughs> it ends here. In Jeff, who is seated, and in Eric, who has his arms on his shoulder. You might not be able to pick out the bully right away. It's Jeff, the one who is seated, who is the bully. Eric, who is the writer, who was, as he describes himself, a very sensitive boy. Who, when people were mean to him, it really helped to undo his sense of who he was, made him feel lesser than. This is a picture of the two of them as kids. You can maybe see with Jeff's face over here on this side. A little bit of that devilish smirk there. (laughs) He showed that smirk a lot as a kid. Eric recalls the first time that he felt made less than by Jeff's actions. 
literally in a sandbox. <laughs> he was playing there with some toys. It may have been before he ever entered elementary school. He was playing there with a little truck and stuff. And Jeff came along and picked up one of those toy trucks and threw it as far as he could into the bushes. And he turned back to Eric with this kind of cruel smirk and smile. And I kind of said, I got you. And that pattern continued throughout their childhood into their adolescence. Eric said it wasn't the worst bullying ever, but I was a really sensitive kid. And so, you know, the, the time that he made me feel less than when he shamed me on the soccer field, these things stayed with me. And he wasn't the only person that Jeff did this to. Jeff was known for this. He was known as the kid you didn't want to mess with because he would go right for the emotional jugular. And so it was some years later that Eric became aware that Jeff became a Buddhist. And not just a Buddhist, but he became a leader in a Buddhist community. That actually he was part of a community that was founded in the area in San Diego where they grew up. That was like welcoming people who were homeless and welcoming people who lived professional lives. And it seemed this really transformative community in which people were kind to each other. And he said, this is not the Jeff that I remember. This is not the guy that I recall. And that's him taking his vows. He wondered, could I trust this? And actually, at one point, Eric ran into a former teacher of theirs in elementary school. And the teacher said, yeah, I I heard about Jeff. I heard about all his peace and love stuff. I don't trust it at all. (laughs) Because the thing is, by the time kids get to me, the age at which I taught you, pretty much it's all set in concrete. (laughs) You are who you are. And so I don't trust his peace and love stuff. But there was something that made Eric really curious. And so he started following Jeff online and they started corresponding a little bit. And he asked at one point if he could meet with him. And he actually found a guy who was really different seeming than the bully that he remembers. He met someone who really listened who seemed tuned in, who was aware as he told his own story that as his 20s went on, as Jeff started to age, he saw gnawing within himself this sense of dissatisfaction, which for all of us, bullies or not, if we pay attention to that dissatisfaction, that sense of emptiness that sometimes gnaws at us, if we listen to it and work with it, it can be the most transformative things in our lives. One day after being out partying one night, Jeff felt this most profound scent of emptiness, loneliness, that the path that he was on of being mean and being bullying was no longer serving him or anyone else. And being a kind of guy of extreme disposition, he found his way to the local monastery, began meditating, and then found his way to a Buddhist monastery in Thailand. (laughs) Excuse me, not in Thailand, in Taiwan. He stayed there for months, practicing every single day, found a teacher until that teacher sent him back to the States and said, now start a community. Jeff, who told a story to Eric about going to their high school reunion that Eric had not attended, and almost one by one, all the people there, all the former classmates came up to them, some of them taking a big swig of a drink to kind of muster up their courage before they could approach him, all asking this one question, Why were you so mean to me? 
And with all of these people, Jeff listening, listening to their stories of the ways in which he was mean. And then when the person was finished, asking, asking for forgiveness and saying that he was sorry. This is, you go to the next slide. That is Jeff and Eric's son having ice cream together in the community in which Eric now lives in San Francisco. This story is not just about Jeff's transformation, although it is. It's about Eric's. See, he and the two of them became friends for a while, and Eric kept dismissing his, you know, sense of being hurt. I don't really need to bring it up. <laughs> I don't need to tell Jeff until one day he felt so moved. And he told the story to him about the playground. He told the story about the soccer field. And he told the story about the sandbox. And he told the story about the time when he embarrassed him in front of a girl that they both liked to make him look lesser than. And he shared all of it. And Jeff just listened. And then asked Eric for his forgiveness and said he was sorry. And Eric asked him, why were you so mean to me? And Jeff said, you have to realize, when I was mean to you, I actually wasn't trying to make you feel worse. <laughs> I was trying to make myself feel better. But of course, that didn't work at all. And that was not a sustainable path for me. He says, now, Eric does his son has made a lifelong friend with this new story that's been written. And he said he wants to raise his son, yeah, to be a sensitive boy, but maybe recognizing that his worth is not conditioned upon anyone else's approval or disapproval or meanness. Jeff has changed. Actually, in some ways, Jeff still says he's just as ambitious as he used to be. He just recognizes right now in his spiritual path, there's really nothing to win and there's nothing to lose. <laughs> and so he channels his ambition towards goodness and healing. People can change. We do it all the time. It is actually the reason that my friend who is on Facebook and the teacher posted that story of the kid gave him the finger. She said it wasn't just that it was funny, although it was. She says, my greatest joy in teaching is recognizing that my kids are not fixed by the time I get them. That the greatest joy is seeing people develop and to especially see a kid who is not at all self-aware in the sixth grade become self-aware enough that he would reach back to me and apologize for this little harm that he did makes me completely overjoyed. That's why I'm a teacher. It has been my experience that forgiveness is the midwife of emergence because it helps bring new life into being. 
it helps us tell the perhaps greatest story of our lives that we haven't told yet. And I do want to be careful when preaching on forgiveness because forgiveness can be a form of spiritual abuse when it is offered as an obligation, especially when profound harm has been done. And so I don't think forgiveness can ever be considered in the abstract or that we should start with the worst case scenario. You know, the what about Hitler questions? (laughs) No. (laughs) Just taking something from the front pages this past week, Les Moonves. You know, it's too early to have that conversation. We're just learning about the harm that the former head of CBS did in sexually exploiting and abusing so many women. We're not going to start with that kind of level. That's just a form of spiritual abuse. But instead, to ask the question, which only we can really ask for ourselves, a self-inquiry, maybe a place where forgiveness can tenderize your hard heart, or mine for that matter. It begins with this question of asking, where are you stuck? Where are we stuck? The resentments that continue to hold you down, the guilt that keeps you from growth, the truth, as Eric learned, that eventually he had to speak in order for him to live with greater ease. Where is the cycle that you, me, us, are living out that no longer serves us, that in fact causes us harm, or the people that we love harm? Forgiveness as the midwife of emergence, bringing change into fuller being in our lives, begins with this question. Where and how do we yearn to be more free? An obligation, never. An invitation, always. To growth, to honoring the possibilities of what is still emerging right now within your life and mine. And so I want to end this message with something I've done in the past, often around Yom Kippur, the turning of the actual year, as Chris talked about today. This is kind of a turning of the year. It seems like a second new year in many ways, whether you're Jewish or not. I want to say that I am sorry. To be a leader in any community means that whether we intend it or not, we cause disappointment, we cause hurt. And I want to say I'm sorry if I have hurt you over this past year. Maybe I don't know about it, in which case I need to hear about it if you are ready to speak that truth into existence. And I will listen. I say I am sorry and I ask your forgiveness because above all else I believe this. That there is always something new emerging in our midst there can always be something new emerging between us. And, of course, in your life beyond Wellsprings. May we all trust that emergence together. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Divine, who is most known in the 
power and the presence of love in our lives. Love never as an obligation or a burden, but as an invitation to forgive and to let go and to let down the burdens that so many of us carry, even and maybe especially beginning in just forgiving ourselves. Letting go of the sense of guilt, shame, embarrassment that many of us carry for the things that, yes, at times we do do wrong, the things where we could have been kinder, the places in our relationships where we could have been more present, and the harm that we do to each other and to ourselves. May we trust this love in the form of forgiveness as a beginning, as an opening, not as a closure to the story of the story of our lives that we have not told yet. A story that is most profoundly our birthright of growth, of healing, of the emergence of wholeness that we already are. Amen.